What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. More than 4,400 African Americans were murdered by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. That's the conclusion of the Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit legal center. They've built a memorial in Montgomery, Alabama to recognize those killings. It opened last month. Patricia Williams has been thinking about the new National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery. She's a longtime columnist for the nation. She also teaches at Columbia Law School. She's the author of several books, including The Alchemy of Race and Rights and Open House on Family, Food, Piano Lessons, and the Search for a Room of My Own. Patricia Williams, welcome. Thank you so much. Lynchings were typically public events carried out in front of big crowds of white people, and often photos were sold afterwards. It's, it's one of the most horrifying things in all of American history. How does the memorial deal with the horror? I don't know how anyone, including a memorial, can deal with the horror. I think it provides a beautifully constructed space for reflection. I think it lives up to its name as memorial. It is dedicated to memory, but the process of remembering. And so each lynching is, is memorialized by a hanging slab of metal. It's suggestive of the horror rather than trying to directly reinscribe it. The monument and the associated museum in Montgomery feature the anti-lynching work of an amazing person, Ida B. Wells Barnett. Tell us about her. Ida B. Wells and later Barnett, her married name, is probably best known for her anti-lynching crusade. In a newspaper that she originally published, centered in Memphis, Tennessee, her outspokenness around the topic of lynching actually meant that the white elite in Memphis at that time burned her press to the ground and threatened her life and told her never to come back. She was out of town at the time the press was attacked, and she moved ultimately to Chicago and proceeded to continue to write for the early African-American press and urged people to leave Memphis in particular and the South more generally. And I understand there's a family connection where relatives of yours cross paths with Ida B. Wells. I think that is true. She graduated from a place called Rust College in in Mississippi, actually, just across the border in Mississippi, which was one of the early schools that countered 
in the wake of emancipation, history of anti-literacy laws. One consequence of the fear of slaveholding states that slaves were going to rise up were, was the fact that in many and most, actually, of the slaveholding states, it was against the law to teach slaves to read and write. That ended with Emancipation Proclamation, with Reconstruction. Rust University was founded by northern missionaries who came south to educate slaves. It's part of that response to the anti-literacy laws, the attempt to educate recently freed slave populations. Um, both Ida B. Wells attended that school, as did my grandmother and a couple of her sisters. In addition, when Ida B. Wells urged people to leave Memphis in particular, my mother's family, my grandmother's family, I should say, um, my great-grandmother's family, were from a small town just outside Memphis and heeded her urging. They witnessed um, the lynchings of that time, in particular the lynchings of some of Ida B. Wells' Wells's close friends in Memphis, and uh, they also headed for the North. And that's how my family came, my mother's family, my mother's side of the family came to Boston um, just around the turn of the century, the late 1890s. A lot of the coverage of the memorial's opening at the end of April focused on interviews with the descendants of lynching victims. You say in your new column um, for The Nation that there are some more topics that, that have to be foregrounded to honor everything this project intends to evoke. And the first one on your list is dealing with the descendants of perpetrators. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yes. You see photographs. There's a really intriguing and horrific book called Without Sanctuary. It is a collection of photographs. Uh, many of which were postcards mailed to the United States Post Office, um, of these lynchings that occurred uh, throughout the South. And they are done by professional photographers who set up their devices, and they were collectibles. They would frequently involve white people smiling and laughing and pointing. You began by sedating that these were uh, public events, more public than we acknowledge. I think there's a memory of night riders or people this was done somehow by dark of night. But lynchings were very public events. Schools in some places were let out. The entire city government would uh, show up. Thousands of people would come from the county all around. Some of these postcards in these collections clearly document the faces of children watching people who had been lynched, be their, their bodies riddled with bullets, uh, their bodies burned uh, and doused with gasoline, parts of their bodies being divvied up, particularly the genitals, fingers, locks of hair, and given away as souvenirs, these events called barbecues. And the trauma of that, the trauma of that, I think has led to two very divided senses of memory within, our, within these United States. And I think the suppression of it is something we are only now becoming coming to terms with. In addition, the degree to which these people who perpetrated this clearly transmitted a kind of emotional state to their own children within their families. People who do this have their own families. And that kind of public abuse is surely related to acts of private abuse, of domestic abuse as well. We really haven't come to terms with that kind of traumatic reiteration in our policing policies, in our segregation of schools, which are in, to some degree a, a continuation of the anti-literacy policies under slavery and certainly the phenomenon of, of mass incarceration. 
The New York Times reported on one fascinating encounter between the descendants of uh, perpetrators of lynching and the descendants of victims. A woman named Karen Brannon, a white woman from Georgia, discovered doing family history that some of her relatives had been part of a mob that had lynched four black people, three men and a woman, in Hamilton, Georgia in 1912. And she decided to write a book about that that she called The Family Tree. It was published two years ago. And one of the people who read that book was a black woman in Alabama named Jackie Jordan Irvine, a professor emeritus of urban education at Emory University, who realized that she was related to one of the lynching victims the two women met. And according to the New York Times, became friends. Is that the sort of legacy confrontation that you have in mind? I I do. I think that the, their confrontation is rather rare. Yeah. Because they ended up becoming good friends, and they're both writers, and I think one of them is a professor. Yeah. So the kind of intellectual conversation they had, the kind of reconciliation over uh, and in reviewing uh, the generations that have brought them to the present moment is something I wish could be reiterated over and over and over again. But my concern is that the trauma on both sides of, of, of what has happened in the wake of lynchings means that these people almost never have that kind of conversation. One of the things they observed in those two women's coming together was that they lived within short miles of one another. But the entire construction of their life in the Deep South was meant to keep them separate and to have separated them from the time of that lynching, and I believe it was in 1912 uh, that that involved both of their relatives, um, until this day was geographic segregation, school segregation, social segregation, so that they lived in completely separate worlds where their paths never crossed. You've also suggested that we need more monuments to lynching and to the legacy of slavery. This one is monumental. They don't all have to be on that scale. What do you have in mind? Uh, you know, I, I'm somebody who believes in memory, if not monuments, or if not memorials, physical memorials. That it, it's, I did suggest that there is a memorial to Ida B. Wells that, is, um, that the family is trying to put together, and I think in my column I mentioned where people could contribute to that. I think my greater concern is that we read about this history, that we not forget about this history, that we track our own relatives to make this history real and to understand how much the forgetting of it applies only to the, to the brutality of what happened in the hanging, the memory, the felt memory, the sense memory, memory the affect, the repercussions, the unconscious emotional repercussions that we carry forward in families. That is something we need to reclaim, put into perspective of what happened all the way back then, and to understand that this, too, is part of the legacy, that the ground in which we walk is still stained with the blood of of horrific events just within the last two to three to four generations. Patricia Williams, her new column is titled, Ida B. Wells Barnett Deserves a Bigger Statue. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice is Extraordinary and we need more monuments like it. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Pat. Thank you.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 